Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is good to be in your house this day to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ and Christ alone. And we pray that you would give us greater understanding of this salvation this morning as we study your word, the understanding of what has transpired as far as our sin is concerned and as far as Christ's righteousness is concerned. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see and understand just how amazing this grace that you have blessed us with is. We pray, Father, that you would continue to work in our lives and use us to be your instruments of grace to others. We pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray especially for those who are sick. We ask that your healing hands be upon their body. We especially mention Miss Louise with pneumonia. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen her body and heal her as well as the others. And we ask, Father, that you might use us to minister to those in need. We pray, Father, for our sister churches throughout the world as they gather together to worship in truth and spirit that many would bring brought, be brought into your kingdom. We thank you for the gospel and the power of the gospel and that many are being saved and you will continue to grow your church and flood the nations with the truth. And we thank you for that wonderful truth that you have given us in your word. And we pray that you would use us to bring honor and glory to your name. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and we will read verses 3 through 8. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you have heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphroditus, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. This past week, as I was writing the newsletter, the article in the newsletter, I shared with you the words of Pastor Andrew Murray, who was a pastor in South Africa in the 1900s. Now, part of what he says is on your order of worship on the back. <clears throat> and in the article that I put in the newsletter, I stressed the importance of having communion with God, having daily communion with God, starting the year off, finding some devotional book that would help you have daily communion with God. And I cannot stress enough what it says about daily communion with God there in that article. As he says, it is indispensable. 
Let me share some of the words that are on the back of your order of worship, because I know some of you may be guilty of not reading those words, so let me read them. He says, the more I think and pray about religious institutions in our country, now of course he's speaking of South Africa, the deeper our convictions become that Christians do not realize that the aim of conversion is to bring them into daily fellowship with the Father in heaven. Do you see that? The aim of your conversion, the aim of my conversion, is to bring us into daily fellowship with God, the Father in heaven. For the believer, taking time each day with God's Word and in prayer is indispensable. In other words, a believer cannot do without it. Each day, we need to wait upon God for His presence and His love to be revealed. It is not enough at conversion to accept forgiveness of sin and even to surrender to God. That is only a beginning. We must understand that we have no power on our own to maintain our spiritual life. We need to receive daily grace from heaven through fellowship with the Lord Jesus. This cannot be attained by a hasty prayer or a superficial reading of a few verses from God's Word. We must take time to come into God's presence to fill our weakness and our need, and to wait on God through the Holy Spirit to renew our fellowship with Him, then we may expect to be kept by the power of Christ throughout the day. Now, I hope you understand some parts of that. If you don't, see one of our young people that were in Sunday school this morning because I took that paragraph and drilled it into them. And so therefore they know it. If they don't know it, I'm going to get on to them. So ask them a question about what was taught in Sunday school and what Andrew Murray says here. Now though we have entered into a new year, we know that it isn't new to God. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. He has a plan for the future. And what a great comfort that is to know that He is in control of the future and He's working out His will, His providence. He will accomplish what He has planned to accomplish this coming year. God continues to save men in the same way that He has always saved them. He has always saved human beings by His grace. And He always sanctifies human beings by His grace. And as we enter into the new year, He will continue to sanctify those who are Christian by His grace. And He does it through daily communion with Him. He never changes. What was true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament. And throughout history, He has always saved people by His grace and sanctified them by His grace. It's sad that many Christians don't fully understand the work of God's grace. Even some pastors don't truly understand the work of God's grace. Then therefore, why should we be surprised when church members don't understand the work of God's grace? God 
is a gracious God, and God saves His people from their sin. That is one of the main works of a pastor, is to teach his congregation God's grace, understanding God's grace. Salvation, past, present, and future. And there's no better sermon to start the new year off than one on God's grace. That's why I'm preaching this sermon this morning. We all need to hear a sermon. We need to be refreshed in our mind. We may think that we know all about God's grace, but I'm here to tell you we do not know all about God's grace. We're always learning about God's grace. So I hope this morning you learn more about God's grace as we look at this passage that we have mentioned here as our background passage. Now, as stated in the order of worship this morning, this sermon is entitled, Understanding Grace. There in Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8, we are helped to have a better understanding of God's grace. It teaches us how God saves and sanctifies sinners. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians And he points out that God's work of grace in the life of the Christians there in Colossae is evident. Now Paul, of course, understood God's grace. He understood God's grace from his own personal experience. You know, as he was on the road to Damascus seeking to do the work of the evil one, he thought he was doing the work of God. Of course, he wasn't doing the work of God. He was doing the work of Satan. He was seeking to put Christians into prison and even put them to death. He thought that he was bringing honor to God, but he was not. And there on the road to Damascus, he came to see his spiritual bankrupt condition. His eyes were opened. He met Christ. And there he experienced grace. Even though he was a religious leader, He had no spiritual life with God. And he came to see that in reality. I mean, at that particular day, Paul was one of the greatest Pharisees there was that was living. Of course, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Pope. And then what's right under the Pope? You have the Cardinals. If the Roman Catholic Church would have been existing at that particular day, Paul would have been a Cardinal. That's how high up he was as far as religious leader, but yet he was God's enemy. He was blind, he was deceived, he was doing the work of Satan. And he understood that, and he wrote about that in Ephesians. Knowing this, he says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, speaking of sinners as well as himself, and you he made alive, who was dead in their trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul is not only talking about sinners, but he's talking about himself, that he was that kind of person. But he was made alive, he tells us. We must realize that there is nothing whatsoever in you and me that is attractive to God. 
nothing whatsoever. So if there's nothing whatsoever to attract us to God, matter of fact, we repel God. Remember what Paul said about his own righteousness, all that he had done. He was a Pharisee, um, yeah, Pharisee, a Pharisee, Hebrew, Hebrews, and on and on and on. And at the very end of that passage, and he says, all of that is what? Dung. Repelling, in other words. God is repelled with our so-called righteousness. And that's what Paul points out. Well, my question is, if God is repelled by us, why would a thrice holy God save such wicked sinners? I mean, we just think about that a minute ago, about how sinful we are, and if we take sin lightly, how sinful that is. Listen to what Paul tells us there in Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand. There's none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who do good, no, not one. How many do good? Left to themselves? None, he says, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongue, they have practiced deceit. The poison of ass is on their lips, whose tongue is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the lost person. That's the sinner who does not know God. Now if you have the mindset that you are really not that bad, then you don't understand depravity. If that is your mindset, you don't understand pride. Now what does God say about those who view their self as being okay in and of their self? Proverbs 16.5 The Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. See, until a sinner comes to see himself as God sees him, until he comes to see himself as David saw himself in Psalms 51, he will not truly cry out to God in repentance. And if he really will not try, cry out to God in repentance, then he cannot be saved. See, until God opens the eyes of a sinner and he sees his true spiritual condition, he cannot even cry out to God. So a sinner must pray for God to give him grace so that he might see and he is able to repent and believe. Now there's three truths that I want us to learn about God's grace this morning so that we might have a better understanding of it and be able to teach others about grace. I pray that your desire, that if you're a Christian, that you desire to teach others about the grace of God, that you want to see people come to know Christ this coming year. I mean, everybody ought to at least pray, God, lay upon my heart at least one person that I can share the gospel with this year, that I can continue to stress to them to come to Christ. I hope at least all Christians have that desire. 
First of all, we must understand that the gospel is of grace alone. Notice what Paul says there in Colossians 1.3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Who does he give thanks to? Does he give thanks to them for pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and beginning to live a godly life? No. He gives thanks to, he gives thanks to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he knows that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his Spirit has worked in their life. To God, for God's work of grace that has come to them. See, Paul heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, where does such faith come from? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, there in verses 16 and 20 through 20, he tells us, do not cease to give thanks for you. So again, he's telling the people there at Ephesus that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them also making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Father, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His call, what are the riches of glory of His inheritance in the saints, And what is the excellency, greatness, exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the work of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul points out the work of Christ, what Christ has accomplished, and that their eyes have been opened to it. Who opened their eyes? Did they just open their eyes or all known? No, God opened their eyes. That was His grace imparted to them to where they could see. It was the faith that He gave them. And faith, as we see later in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. Now what is this faith? And that not of yourself. So the faith is not of yourself. What is the faith? Well, he says what? The faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. So Paul makes it very clear that this grace, this faith, is a gift of God. Now where does that come from? Again, it comes from God. You cannot earn a gift. A gift is given to you. The very aspect of a gift is being given And he makes it clear that it's not by works. It's not anything that you do. It's not anything that I do. Because he would boast. You would boast. I would boast saying, look at what I had done. No, it's nothing that we do. It's a gift from God. And then therefore, we boast about what God has done, not what we have done. And we must remember that we were born in transgressions and sin. By nature, we were what? 
children of wrath. In other words, what did we earn? We had not earned righteousness. We had earned the wages of death because we've all sinned. And the sin earns wages, which is death. We all deserve to be put to death. But God, in His glorious riches, as Paul says there in Ephesians, had mercy, had grace upon us. Look there again at Ephesians chapter 1. Or chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in ages to come we might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we learn what moved God to save sinners. Now earlier I asked. What would move a thrice holy God to save sinners? Well, we have the answer right here. He saves sinners to the glory of His grace. Again, go back to Ephesians 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual gift in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice, all spiritual blessings are found where? All spiritual blessings are found in Christ, He tells us. And He saves sinners to the praise of His glory. See, there is nothing in the sinner that moves God to save sinners. There's nothing in you that moves God to save you. Do you understand that? See, we have people constantly telling people that there's something in you that causes God to save you. That's not the case. Remember, you repel God in your sinfulness, in your deadness. What is in a sinner only deserves the wrath of God. We read in Romans, what? There is none who do good. No, not one. So we must understand that the gospel is grace alone. Now second, we must understand the nature of grace. We read just a moment ago, Romans 3, 23 and 24. No, we did not read Romans 3, 23. So let's read it. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. I want to emphasize that. Freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So He tells us that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. But yet God justifies sinners by His grace, this gift of grace. Now, now most of you have heard the acrostic, grace. You know what acrostic is, word by each letter. Grace, God's riches, 
at Christ's expense. So remember that. God's riches at Christ's expense. If it wasn't for Christ, we wouldn't have the riches that God gives us. Now, Romans 3, 23 and 24 tells us that we've fallen short of this glory of God, but yet we are justified. Even though we're sinners, even though we've fallen short, he says we are justified freely by His grace. Now, I already pointed out, there's nothing good in a sinner to attract God to us. Even man's original image that was made by God is marred by sin. So man is totally depraved. Now, of course, being totally depraved does not mean we're as bad as we could be. What it means is that sin has affected every single aspect of our life. As Calvin says, there is an inward distortion which makes all human action displeasing to God. So in your lost state, every single thing that you do, even if it looks good, every single thing that you do is tainted by sin. And if it's tainted by sin, it cannot be pleasing to God. And he goes on, whether or not they are outwardly good or bad, even after regeneration, our action is mixed with evil. So even as Christians, there's times that we think that we've done good, but it's even mixed with sin. So therefore, we must have Christ sanctified. So within man, there's nothing good, nothing in them to cause God to even desire to save them. So I come back to the question. Why does God save sinners if there's nothing good within them? Well, it's because of what He is in Himself. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved. Love of God, God's love is the greatest good. When God's love is shown to helpless sinners... It is mercy and it is grace. See, when we come to understand that God is moved by God. Let me restate that. God is moved by God. Nothing else moves Him. He moves Himself to save sinners. And it's not because of something we do or something that we are. But it's in spite of what we do, and it's in spite of what we are. Then we begin to understand the true meaning of grace. Not only will we begin to understand grace, but we will begin to truly understand the cross of Christ. See, grace has no cause found in man. But all the cause is found in God Himself. And this is why Paul calls grace free grace, freely given. It is free from all cause of man. For all cause 
are from God Himself. That's why I said just a minute ago, God is moved by God. He planned it. He implemented it. He initiated it. And He applies it. It's all of God. See, that's the true nature of grace. Third, understanding grace brings forth fruit. Notice there in verse 8. Which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and it's bringing forth fruit, that it is also among you since today you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. See, this fruit is all of grace as well. God puts a desire in us to produce spiritual fruit. Remember the, the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, and on and on. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Why do we bring forth the fruit of the Spirit? Because grace has been put in us. Otherwise, we cannot bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. And when grace is put in us, we bring forth, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. A man may do something good to satisfy his own conscience or to hear praise from other men, but if it's not initiated by God's grace, it's not pleasing to God. But a true child of God produces fruit naturally. Just like an apple tree. It produces fruit naturally. It doesn't have to groan and grunt and struggle to produce that apple. No, it just comes naturally. And likewise, a child of God, the fruit of the Spirit comes naturally because He's a new creation. If any man is in Christ, He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And He has the desire to please Christ. And He is joined to the vine so that He naturally produces fruit. What does Jesus say to His disciples in John chapter 15, verse 5? He says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. He that abideth in Me, and I in Him, what? Bear much fruit. For without Me, you can do some things. No. Young people, you better quickly say, No, pastor, you told us in Sunday school you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Only when you are joined to Christ by grace are you able to do anything that is pleasing to God. Our entire lives are to be one of grace as we are in Christ and our love comes from Him. And by His Spirit, we are able to bear the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, and the very first one, is love. We are commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, apart from Christ, we cannot do that. But when we experience grace, then we are enabled to do that. Even those that have wronged us. Even those that are our enemies, we are still enabled by the power of Christ, by the power of that grace that is in us. For we have been made partakers 
of Himself. We are partakers of Christ. So therefore, our love for God, our love for our wife, our love for our husband and our children and other believers comes from God's gift of grace. Now how are these truths about grace rightly applied? So that as you and I go through 2024, people see in us what Paul saw in those Christians there at Colossae. I mean, isn't that what you desire? If you're a Christian, that should be your desire. You want people to see fruit of grace in your life. Well, first, realize that God created you as a way to manifest His glory. He glories Himself in saving sinners. That's why He saves sinners. He glories Himself in saving us. He manifests His glory through us as we become instruments of His glory by grace. Now think about that. That's a great mystery, Paul says. Again, why would he take such sinners as you and I and make us trophies of His grace? Well, he does it for His glory. To show us how gracious He is, how merciful He is to us as sinners. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what God does in our life. God commands us to love Him, and God commands us to love our fellow man. Yet we can only do it if our obedience comes through Him, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and grace. I remind you what he said, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So everything that we do must be in Christ and of Christ. Do you see that grace is the gospel? I want to repeat that. Grace is the gospel. If you don't emphasize grace, then you don't have the gospel. It's the main ingredients. Do you understand that it is grace alone that saves sinners. You and I can add nothing to it. Christ did it all. All to Him I owe. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If you're not clinging to the cross then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand grace. We cling to the cross as our only hope, what Christ accomplished for us in His salvation for His people. That He died for our sins and that He earned us righteousness that we could not earn. That is what we are clinging to. Do you see grace in your daily obedience? It must come from Jesus Christ by grace. That's why it's so important that every single morning we spend time with Christ. I go back to what Andrew Murray said. For the believer, taking time each day with God and in prayer is indispensable. I emphasize that. It's indispensable. 
Don't expect to grow in grace if you're not spending time in Christ with Christ every morning. It's indispensable if you're to manifest the glory of God. Second, Paul tells us there in Colossians chapter 1 on further over in verse 26 and 27 or 329, the end of the chapter. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations now has been revealed to the saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. And notice where their perfection is. In Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. Now notice, The glory of this mystery. What is the glory of this mystery? Well, the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, that God would come and live in sinners? Is that not a mystery? He has come to live in His people by His Spirit. And yet Paul, he says that I labor, I strive with all of Christ's energy. He knew where His energy came from. He knew where His power came from. He looked to Christ daily. He knew that if He was going to be a vessel of honor, if He was going to manifest the glory of Christ, that He had to look to Christ every moment of every day. He was in Christ. And Christ was powerfully working in Him and through Him. I mean, we as Christians, do we not want that? Do we not want Christ to work powerfully in us and through Him? Well, the only way is spending time with Him. All the commands of grace are called to us to live and love by the power of grace. We are saved by grace that we may live by grace. Again, Murray says, we must take time to come into God's presence. And notice what he says. We must feel our weakness. We don't come into His presence boasting about, oh, I'm strong, I'm ready to go to battle. No, we come, God, God, I'm weak. God, I can't face this day unless you come. And by your Spirit, fill me. By your Spirit, you enable me to bring forth. If we don't come to Christ and ask and plead with Him in this time of devotion and confess our weakness and our need and wait upon God through His Holy Spirit to renew our fellowship with Him, we will be useless. But when we come and we confess our weakness and our need and we wait upon God through His Holy Spirit, to renew our fellowship with Him and revive us. 
then like Paul, we're ready to strive and labor and do the work that he's called us to do. Then we may expect to be kept, as he says, by the power of Christ throughout the day. Did you know it said, said throughout the day? Which implies what? The next day we need the same thing. We come again, day after day after day, pleading with God to fill us with His Spirit, to enable us to go through this day and to bring honor and glory to you, to give us the wisdom that we need to live the Christian life, to give us the wisdom that we need to be able to converse with people, to give us the strength that we need to be able to work for that boss who is unbearable, to be able to work with those people that are constantly complaining. If we don't have God's grace in us, we won't be able to do it. But when we're filled with His grace, we're able to face whatever He brings into our life each and every day. But again, it begins with this communion and this devotion and this fellowship with Him in grace so that He supplies us with the grace that we need to persevere forward. And in the race, and here, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Listen to what Spurgeon said in his devotion, evening devotion on January the 5th, which relates to this very closely. If the Lord has given you light, that means if He's opened your eyes to be able to see the truth, dear reader, He looks on the light with a particular interest. See, He looks upon you and me as Christians with a particular interest. Not only is it dear to Him as His own handiwork. Do you understand that word? God's own handiwork. But because it is like Himself, for He is light. So see, He looks upon us as light because He is light. And the only reason we're light is because He's light. Pleasant it is to the believer to know that God's eye is thus tenderly observing the work of grace, which He began. He never loses sight of the treasure which He has placed in earthly vessels. Sometimes we cannot see the light, but God always sees the light. See, that's the important thing. Sometimes it gets dark, and we don't see the light. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that God still sees the light in us. Even though we may be discouraged or troubled, God sees the light in us. He always sees the light. And that is much better than our seeing. Better for the judge. I like this. Better for the judge to see my innocence than for me to see it. It is very comfortable for me to know that I am one of God's people. But whether I know it or not, if, The Lord knows it. I am still safe. See? If the Lord knows it, I'm safe. Whether I know it or not. I mean, there's times we go through life, we we begin to even question, Lord, am I even a Christian? Why, Why would I even commit such a sin as that? 
and confess that I'm a Christian and, and we, we're troubled. But if God sees the light, that's all that matters. I'm safe. This is the foundation. The Lord knows them that are His. If God knows that we're His, nothing else matters, see. You may be sighing and groaning because of inbred sin and mourning over your darkness, yet the Lord sees the light in your heart for He put it there. That He put grace there. All the cloudiness and gloom of your soul cannot concede your light from His gracious eyes. Conceal your light from His gracious eyes. You may have sunk low in despondency, even despair. But if your soul has any longing toward Christ, And if you are seeking to rest in His finished work, God sees the light. You hear that? How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? Well, He just told us. If your soul is longing toward Christ, and if you are seeking to rest in what? The finished work of Christ. God sees the light. He not only sees it, but He also preserves it in you. I, the Lord, do keep it. He keeps us. No one, no one can pluck us out of His hand. This is a precious thought to those who, after anxious watching and guarding of themselves, feel their own powerlessness to do so. The light thus preserved by His grace. He will one day develop into a splendor of noonday and the fullness of glory. The light within is the dawn of the eternal day. Oh, what wonderful truths are found in that devotion. May we grasp them. May we understand grace and what God is able to do, what God has done and what God is able to do in the lives of His people. Has the light shone in your life? What are you to do? Well, the Scripture tells us what? To cry out to God. To cry out to God for Him to put grace in our heart. Let us pray. Father, truly Your grace is amazing. And I pray that we have a little bit better understanding of this sovereign, amazing grace this morning. Cause us to realize, Father, that 
understanding that grace is grace alone. Cause us to realize that we must understand its nature. That the only reason why we have experienced grace is because of you and your grace and mercy have put grace in our heart and cause us to understand that if we have experienced grace, then we will be bringing forth fruit. Fruit that will bring honor and glory to your name and manifest this great mystery that you have brought about so that we give you all the praise and glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.